this movie is so spot on as far as the way it captures the adolescent friendship, um, the way it, it these characters, these kids go through this this journey of sort of opening themselves up, which you don't really it's hard to do is particularly for boys. I think, I mean, I think that's the only perspective I can give is, you know, as a kid, I wasn't very ready to spill my guts and my deepest, darkest, darkest feelings to my friends and things like that. But as you kind of find those friends that you can, you know, release that on or, or, or reach that, that sort of level with them, it, it is sort of a cathartic thing to, to, to let loose. And this movie kind of, shows that rarity of of that right because these are the friends that you have that you remember for the rest of your life another episode of a podcast directed by so we are now moving on to more of rob reiner for this episode we are going to take a look at two of his more well-known films stand by me and the princess bride so mike this is quite a jump from this is final tap like kind of a cult classic and the sure thing which is i think kind of a forgotten sex comedy to now we get really into like the kind of meat of Rob Reiner's career. So these are probably the movies I would assume that like most people have seen multiple times. Yeah. And I would think, uh, you know, if someone said, I guess of a, a particular age would stand by me, uh, princess bride might cross more generations because of the, right. uh, fairy tale setting. Uh, but I, you know, it wouldn't shock me. Um, if you're getting to eighties movies that these are two favorites of right. people of, a of a certain, certain age. I'm trying to say that without sounding sarcastic. I, I do. People like me. Is that, that what because, you're saying? Uh, well, yeah. no. Um, I mean, stand by me. It's nostalgic for something that is, you know, approaching a century ago for, yeah. for people who are discovering it now. So, um, you know, for, for the kids, uh, if they remade Stand By Me, which I know would be, uh, you know, horrifying to some, uh, they would be nostalgic for the mid '80s, like you're seeing with something like Stranger Things. So I, I do think that there may be a cutoff as far as uh, the love for this particular film that doesn't apply to uh, the Princess Bride. That's a good point. Uh, and here uh, we've heard from our expert uh, Hiro from the True Bromance podcast about Stand By Me, and it's it's interesting that you bring up this idea of like people of like a certain generation. And this is definitely like, I fold myself into that for sure. Cause this was like, this came out when I was like seven or eight. Um, so I probably didn't see it right when it came out, but maybe a couple years later, but it is one that like, it's interesting. It's not a movie that I rewatch a lot. It's not a movie that I'm like, Oh, I got to pop in stand by me. That's, that's one that I really got to check out over and over again. But like the second I started watching it again, it does have that very powerful nostalgia vibe to it. Some of it is the actors who are involved, who went on to, you know, very big, very big things in terms of their career. Even, you know, um, River Phoenix, who sadly died young, like went on to be, honestly might have gone on to be the most accomplished actor out of any of the people in this movie. Like you have, you know, you have a good cast here, but you I think know, he's probably most respected. Probably considered as such. Right. Yeah. Uh, even though he doesn't have obviously the uh, the career that the other uh, gentlemen do, uh, I think that there was you know there was a version of an alternate reality, a better one, 
where he was, uh, you know, DiCaprio or Depp, you know, yeah. his generation. He's right in that in yeah. line to, to have those type of roles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have actors like Will Wheaton and Jerry O'Connell who had long careers, but maybe not as respected. I mean, Will Wheaton, of course, kind of made his name in TV, in Star Trek and Jerry O'Connell, you know, like he had this like weird, like three or four year period where he was a star <laughs> and then like just completely went away, like for whatever reason. And I think, you know what, I'll, I think I'll when you watch this, I, but I think when you watch this, the thing that people, sadly, because I think he's actually really good here, but the thing that people say like, oh, he got skinny after this, like it's not fat anymore. That's like, well, okay. I mean, yeah, that's, that is true. I was going to say that, uh, no shade to, to River Phoenix, because uh, unfortunately we don't know how he would age, but Jerry O'Connell has aged very well. He's yes. become like, oh, that's the, the good-looking guy of the yep. group, where he was the, the picked-upon one. Uh, didn't he marry Rebecca Romaine? Or... That sounds right. He, he's, he, he married He's well. done very well for that. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> for sure. Um, so what about you? Like, what's, you know, because you're a little bit younger than me, so what's your tie into this movie do you have the same nostalgia for it or and if you rewatched no. <laughs> it yeah i didn't i wouldn't think so it's interesting how like we're not no. that far apart in age but like that four or five years can make a big difference there is a cutoff for sure um i don't know if you do you count as a millennial or no no is not that, quite last... i just 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 like one year too old to be a millennial this, see this bothers me to no end because i think it's 1980 uh, to... and on is millennial yeah, so I, I, I would count so, yep, you damn millennials. Uh, millennials have a pretty, pretty <laughs> wide gap. Yes. Um, because I, I remember, I guess, thinking that I was like Generation Y, because like the movies I, I was watching when I was a kid was like all about the Gen Xers. That was like the MTV generation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know when millennials became like, you know, a slur, basically. The whipping boys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I was well past. High school, college, I was into adulthood. I'm in my 30s, I think, before I even started hearing millennials. And suddenly yeah. I'm in with that group. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. Like, there's there's a pretty big gap between you know, me graduating high school in 2001 uh, on the cusp of the Internet. We're talking about dial-up Internet then mm-hmm. and smartphones and social media. So, yes, I guess as a millennial, um, the, the oldest possible millennial <laughs> that you can have, uh, I was, you know, I was too young for this movie when it initially released and I guess a, a shortcoming of myself, even as someone that likes uh, movies from a very young age, uh, if you were getting into this type of thing, I was looking at it as a kid as like a period piece, really. I was looking at something that doesn't apply to me cause it's set in the fifties, late fifties. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you have a sequence where you have Corey Feldman and, uh, you know, Mr. Uh, Romaine, uh, allegedly, I guess, in my head, I think he married her, uh, you know, doing this like doo-wop lollipop thing together on the train tracks. And you know, as a kid, I'm watching this and I'm like, what is happening? What <laughs> what is this? Who are these people? This is something uh, not even of, not even probably of my dad's ilk as far as like his his experiences as a child. So I didn't catch up with it. You know, I may have seen bits and pieces, but I'm pretty sure the first time I watched it was a few years ago for uh, an episode of Marcus Played. I think it was the first episode we did when we were talking about nostalgia and summer movies. Interesting. And I really liked it. Really liked it then. Like, But I'm, I'm also – now I'm closer to Richard Dreyfus. Like I don't have kids, but I'm right. closer in age to a middle-aged man looking back, mm-hmm. and there's a certain sweetness that really captures me now that as a kid – I would have been, I, you know, I'm I'm looking at the adventure the kids go on 
and kind of nitpicking it. Like, ah, I don't really know any kids like this. We wouldn't do this. We'd be playing Nintendo or something. Um, that being said, I think even on rewatch for this podcast, the catalyst for their journey, I never really care. I don't really care what they're doing. Like, I know it's based on a short story called The Body, but like anytime that it they revolves around the actual. They made a good change with that name because like no oh, one yeah, cares. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Uh, it's just an excuse for these kids right. in a strange way to have these very early, early versions of like midlife crises where you have these one-on-one moments with the kids where they like break down from each other. And man, you would have thought watching it then that every one of these actors, every one of these child actors were going to go on to like win Oscars, which, yeah. you know, is, is both like, you know, props to them, but also maybe a little bit of extra sadness watching it that we didn't quite get that from, from these kids going forward. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's two, two, especially that like, we just never really know what we were going to get. I mean, you have, you know, of course the tragedy of, of river Phoenix dying so young and then Corey Feldman, you know, likely being sexually abused and that kind of, you know, ruining his life in a lot of ways. And like, you know, making his career become secondary to everything that he's going through as a human being. So I think it's interesting. You can look back on these movies like the Haim Feldman crew and it can look like, oh, well, they, they were never that good. But if you watch Corey Feldman in this movie, he's pretty fantastic. He was good. Yeah. Actually, yeah, you're and- absolutely right. As a kid, I remember looking at them as jokes. Mm-hmm. Like it was something that like young girls, not even teenage girls, likes and those guys had no talent and they were like uh you know new kids on the block or something right it's it's someone not to take seriously which maybe is another reason i stayed away from you know this type of material then back then because i'm thinking like oh that's goofy that's for for girls to have like their first crush on these these kids but (laughs) i'm trying to watch my words here based on you introducing you know what Corey feldman is like going through in the press but it's really you know it's more about this is material for old men Strangely, and mm-hmm. I'm like that's why I said I'm watching my words here yes, based on yes, like what you because <laughs> like, damn it, Dave, I had a whole thing about nostalgia and like men remembering like true friendship that maybe they lose when they take on responsibilities, and you just mucked it up. And I'm like, <laughs> I, now I can't even talk about that anymore. No, but all of that is true, and I think I think the power of this movie, I think it does, it does two things very very smartly. Generally speaking, one, I I would disagree that it matters whether like you're connected to that time period or not. I think, I think one, it really matters when you see this movie. Like, I think if you see this as a kid, there's an easy buy-in because we all, and you especially like have this like group of friends that, you know, stick with you at least through childhood, if not much further than that. Like you've got this like really strong group of friends you've kept with up your whole life. So it has that tie-in. And then you have the Richard Dreyfus piece, the kind of narrator who's writing and telling the story and looking back on how intimate and how powerful and profound those friendships as a young person are, because when you're young, you don't have, you don't have, you're not split, right? You're not like, well, I have to go to work and I have my work friends and then I have my relationships and our couple friends and, you know, all that stuff. And you're in you our case, friends. like podcast friends. friends. Yeah, these That's are it. my friends and we hang out all the time, every day. We know everything about one another. Which is why when these realizations come about on this kind of road trip of sorts, it's extra powerful. Like, I can't believe that these things were kept secret because, like, that's how much shame is built up. So you get the the Richard Dreyfuss stuff, too, of, like like you said, looking back on your childhood and remembering how powerful and impactful those friendships are. And I, it's This is one of those movies that if you – I think if you come to it with an open mind, I think it's really difficult not to be affected by it. Like, because we've all – 
Like we've not all had experiences where we go look for a dead body, but we've all had those friendships as kids. So if you don't like this, get on Twitter. Get on Twitter. I'm sure you're going to see some people saying yet another story about a group of white dudes. (laughs) Uh, I mean, because I see that (laughs) about anything uh, that is, which is it's strange to me because while true and while uh, you know for the last well. Century and change, uh, white guys have had it pretty good as far as entertainment that reflects back seeing a face or seeing someone that looks like them, if not actually having the same life experiences. Uh, this is the type of material that if I was, you know, if I had kids, uh, I would want I would want them to see just because I think it subverts a lot of your expectation of what um, you know, especially young kids are getting into. Like uh, what's an, like the Sandlot is one that I think is probably more palatable as far as showing kids like oh that's a family film that'll be on presumably disney plus uh and it's about goofy hijinks that kids get into but this one has that adult bent it's looking at it from adult eyes right uh and i think it would be far more challenging to kids and you would actually hope that that's something you could ingrain in young men that they could have honest open relationships and a safe space you know don't really like using that <laughs> that phrase because like millennial that also has like the tinge of now being a slur but uh it would be i think inspiring and maybe comforting uh to to know that people could have that closeness with uh someone else that's you know they're burgeoning on you know young masculinity and that's not right. something you see very often in, in, in a particular now. film just about white dudes yeah yeah i think you know i'm glad you brought that up because i one of the things i love about this movie is there's there's never a moment where one of the other kids is like, why are you crying? Guys don't cry. Like there's no, there's none of that. It's just like my friend is, even though they give each other shit constantly for everything else. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And, but they're just like, my friend is going through it right now and I want to be there for him. You know, it's just, I actually was uh, reading an article by a friend of mine named Fiona Underhill. She was talking about river Phoenix's career and kind of talking about these two, amazing scenes around campfires that he did. And one of them is here and one of them is in my own private Idaho. And it's amazing to see him as such a young, like you, you watch him. And even though we've talked about like how everyone is so good in this movie, like you watch him, at least for me. And you're like, okay, yeah, this is the, if I have to pick one person in this movie, he's clearly the one who has a grasp on the craft of acting. Like he really knows what he's doing already. Like as such a young actor, I thought you were gonna say that's me, baby. I was the young River Phoenix when I was a kid. Definitely, that's the, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the one to one, definitely, completely equal. Um, but it is so rare to see a movie like this with so many young actors, and there doesn't seem to be like a obvious weak link. And I don't know how much of that is just great casting. I don't know how much is great editing. Um, and also just Rob Reiner as a director, like pulling these incredible performances out of these young actors. Is, is something that I don't think should go unsaid because there's a lot of movies that are focused on kids. Like you mentioned The Sandlot. There's some, you know, there's some unevenness in that. There's some good performances and some not so good ones. And this one, just across the board, is pretty fantastic. Well, yeah, and that one, they're not they're not playing young men. They're just playing gags, you know. Yeah. And that's not a – I like The Sandlot and I Me liked too. it a lot when I was a kid. So that's not a knock. Like it's there should be entertainment that's aimed at what will make a child laughier or what you know what's their sensibility, what's their sense of humor. Uh, I would I would say that Stand by Me might fall into the uh, the Pixar camp of family entertainment, where it's definitely geared towards adult 
uh, enjoying it and sort of an adult's aspirations for their own children, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But I think that gap is now further apart than what it was uh, back when was this 85, 86, uh, 86. which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just because I can't get through one uh, review without knocking a child actor uh, and I, I won't name him. But when you were saying, hey, all four of these are sort of equal. And so they have these like powerful moments with each other and you don't feel like one of them is being like knocked off the screen by the other. Like, uh, you know, the Adams family was one in the Sandlot time period uh, that came out that Christina Ricci was like, oh, oh that's yeah. a young movie star. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't that know. Was... I don't remember who played the brother in Nobody the Adams does. family, but I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember him getting any sort of heat. And no. uh, that's no knock. I mean, I. I don't know what you do with, what was it, Pugsley? I don't know if that character's written to be like a showy role. Yeah, no. But there was a difference. There, <laughs> there was, was definitely a difference. There was definitely a difference. Uh, the other thing I noticed in this movie, because it had been a long, like, as I mentioned, it's not a movie I rewatch a lot, although every time I end up watching it, I'm like, why don't I watch this more often? This is great. Um, Keeper Sutherland also is, like, legitimately, especially for, like, child viewers, legitimately, t- legitimately terrifying in this role. Like, you do believe that, he would do something awful to these kids. Like there is not a doubt in my mind. And it's really interesting because I think if you, if you had this same character played the same way, but played against adults, I don't think he comes off as scary at all. But because the whole movie is from the perspective of these kids who haven't quite figured it out yet, haven't, you know, gone through puberty entirely yet, aren't, you know, aren't big, aren't tough. And this is their symbol of fear. It really comes across well here. And it's something that I, I don't think in like previous viewings it really impacted me, but just like watching it and being so focused on it for the podcast and being from the perspective of these of these young kids, like that villain piece really works. I mean, he is what I would be to uh, the younger millennials, right? He's like, yes. Yes. <laughs> he's he's still a child, but he's he looks so much older that he looks like he's from a different generation. And I actually believe he was still just a teenager. I think he was nineteen yeah. or twenty when this so. Uh, it fits, and that I, I definitely remember. Like especially when you're, you know, twelve. Uh, if someone's eighteen, nineteen years old, uh, yeah, that just... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some sort of monster. Uh, that's uh, just around the corner. So I definitely appreciate that. Uh, did you have any? So if you've grown up with this movie, I don't guess you have any issue with it. But do you think someone going back and say they get into a kick of watching like you know those mid '80s movies, like you mentioned, kind of Corey Feldman. Uh, River Phoenix, a little bit more on the art house side, you know, his stuff showing up in the Criterion collection, but Kiefer Sutherland, uh, do you think this one gets roped in or, or is this one, the quality of it so good? Does it separate itself from the other sort of like, I don't know, what would you call that era? Is it the Brat Pack? Is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah. That sort of time yeah. frame where you'd see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think if you take the time to watch it, it's going to stand out and by a fair amount. Like, I, I don't, I don't think you can watch this and not see the difference between this and other movies of its ilk. But I think if you, you know, if you're just like, if you're grouping movies together, like, oh, I could see this getting grouped in with this other, like, not so great stuff. But I think it's something that will definitely stand out. Like, if you sit down and spend the two hours with it, it's like, oh my God, this is actually really good. This is much better than I expected. And I think they would have the same reaction that you would have, uh, that you had a couple years ago. Like, you know, you look at the cast like, and like, oh, there's a little silliness here. And then watch it kind of like, oh, wow, this is really good. This is way better than I thought. That is, that is how I talk in Chateau Lexington here. What is this silliness that's about to transpire on it the does, screen? It does sound like you, actually. I would absolutely yes. believe it. But yeah, I it's one of those movies that 
I think I think some movies that you're nostalgic for, you like it purely for the nostalgia, right? You're just like, oh, I love this when I was a kid, so it makes me think of that. Uh, but I don't think that's what makes this movie great. I don't think it's just a pure nostalgia movie. Like I think it does it does feel, even though the focus of it is a certain decade in time, it still feels like so weirdly timeless. Because other there's like a couple moments. Where it's like, okay, this is designed to be about the 50s. But I would say the majority of the movie could take place during any time. Like, obviously, no cell phones and all the technology pieces. But everything else, the way these kids interact, like, this feels genuine to me. I just didn't know that uh, growing up in the Bay Area that, you know, you all just had pie eating contests and all sorts of things. That was just (laughs) – That's the part you're going to bring up? (laughs) Which is like maybe the most Rob Reiner moment in this entire film is that ridiculous – I mean it's Rob Reiner or it's – you know, Stephen King I think probably shares – and I believe he's on record saying this is his favorite uh, screen adaptation of one of his works, Um, which – I think it might be mine too. Like – I think, you know, the most recent uh, It Chapter 1 was probably pretty good for a lot of people. I think we'll I think take Shawshank a look. Shawshank would probably Shawshank be, would be a lot one of, for most. A lot of silly people's uh, opinions, yes, definitely. No, you don't like Shawshank. I like it. I, I just don't think it belongs. It, because, like, every time Shawshank gets brought up, it's like, oh, in the top ten list of all time. And I'm like, is it? Like, can we just pump the brakes here? Uh, but I think there's another movie that we'll cover later, directed by Rob Reiner, that's also up there for really good Stephen King adaptations. But if I had to choose, I think I think it would probably be this one. Like, I think this one, it really, it's, I, one of the things I like about it is kind of how efficient it feels. Like, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of wasted sequences. Like, the pie-eating uh, sequence could be the only thing that maybe you could see, like, oh, this is extraneous. But it's I liked fun, it. and, and it lightens uh, the mood, because everything King. else... Well, there's a little uh, self-flagellation there, uh, if this is in the uh, novella, I guess, where, you know, the buddy, uh, Jerry O'Connell, is like, the ending sucks. What's with the ending? And <laughs> of course, great. that's uh, <laughs> something that Stephen King has had to deal with pretty much with all of his works, is he can't land the ending. So I, I, mm-hmm. I liked it. It's sort of inside baseball kind of yeah, talk. definitely. And I also, that's another thing that I really like about this, that I don't like a lot of, about a lot of Stephen King works, and a lot of this, because the source material, is this does feel... Like, it ends in the perfect way. And I haven't read the novella, so I don't know if we have the same, like, narrator wrap-up that we do in the film here. But just having, you know, Richard Dreyfus do the wrap-up of, like, you know, no friendships will ever be as powerful as those when we have when we were young. Like, really just, like, solidifies everything that the movie is trying to say in, like, two or three sentences. And that's definitely not easy to do. So I don't know how much of that is Stephen King and how much of that is adaptation work. But, man, like, it just really really works like i was really i was really pleased in watching this again and kind of like sometimes when you watch a movie again you're like oh maybe it's not very good i haven't seen it in a long time my tastes have changed film has changed and then like when you watch it, you're like no that's still really great like that's such a that's such an amazing feeling as you're watching a movie again after a long time and not seeing it i think it was it's pretty lucky the the sentimentality i think is Shared for better or worse uh, in both Reiner's uh, screen works and and the written word from uh, Stephen King. Uh, okay. Just reading here on Wikipedia that uh, the director of Nine and a Half Weeks this was going to be his follow up to, to yes. that. That I, I do not see that different movie. So <laughs> I, very 
very different, and I don't even understand uh, what was happening in those meetings. But I'm glad uh, <laughs> yes. Reiner got the gig, and uh, you know. But even then, like coming off of our previous episode, I think this would have been quite the curveball if you had been charting Reiner's script to that point, yeah. where he could tap into those things, and you know, having probably having some Goodwill Hunting uh, moments where you, you've got you know old bastards crying in the back row or trying to hide their tears <laughs> from their loved ones. <laughs> Yes. They take their kids to see this movie. They're the ones that end up weeping, and their kids have this awkward moment seeing their dad cry. What's what's happening there? Yeah, I, that's a really great point that you bring up. I think some people forget how sentimental Stephen King can be in terms of the way he writes his case. He's a horror writer, and we just make these assumptions that he's like, oh, everything's violent and bloody and gory, and all the endings are sad. But really, if you read a lot of his work, there's a lot of sentiment there, and Rob Reiner is kind of the perfect fit. For this kind of stuff, like I wouldn't maybe not want him directing things like It or Cujo or something like that. But like, especially for his novellas, that's where <laughs> a lot of this comes out. And it ends up being this like perfect marriage of Stephen King's written word and Rob Reiner's stylistic choices. And you might not have seen it up till now in his career. But looking back after, you know, having watched Misery and having watched The Princess Bride and The American President and all these movies, like you could really see like it. Reiner does a really good job at, like, he goes just far enough where it's, like, not schmaltzy, but there is emotion there, and it does feel very genuine. So it like, ends up working. That's why you have the pie-eating contest. That's you right. break it up. You break yeah. up the, the scenes of crying with this, this goofy revenge story of True. puke, yes. which I loved. <laughs> I loved every bit of that. Of course you did. Uh, perfect place to end our talk on <laughs> Stand By Me with puke. Here comes uh, our expert. <laughs> Speaking of puke, uh, we're going to take a break and hear from Hyro about The Princess Bride. But then when I watched it, I was just in love with it. I've been in love with it since the first time I saw it. I even um, – I had an opportunity a couple of years ago. My daughter was – I gave uh, probably about five or six and they had a uh, live showing of this. It was like sort of like a sing along, not a sing along, but it was just like a live showing and at at the local theater. And I took her to it, and five years old or whatever she was, fully engrossed, like just thrown right into the into the mix. And I think that again, the casting you couldn't imagine anybody else playing these roles, right? You know, Princess Buttercup. No way. I have no idea who he was was thought for this, but um. Just such an enrapturing movie. It just, it, it, I feel like Fred Savage, right? When you're just sitting there having your your grandfather read to you, and that's what this is. It's like a like a like a bowl of chicken noodle soup, man. This movie is perfect for any occasion. All right, so now we're back. We're back to talk about the one movie of Rob Reiner's that's in the Criterion Collection, uh, The Princess Bride, and that's. Maybe not something people you would expect. That. No, I think it's great. You hate actually. it. No, I, I don't. Okay. I own it on Criterion, actually. I think it's fantastic because I think I think Criterion, though I love a lot of the stuff they put out, a lot of it is not really approachable for a lot of new film fans, right? It's like everything's not in English. Everything's in black and white. Everything, you know, like it is. So it's nice to have something really approachable. And I think The Princess Bride, I mean, maybe one of the most approachable movies ever made. Like, regardless of collection, like, it's just, who doesn't love The Princess Bride? It's, it's like, it's a romance, it's an adventure, it's fantasy, like, it's all those storybook things that every kid 
would want as a kid and every adult, every adult looks back like fondly at. So I think, I think that stuff really, really works. And I'm glad it's in one of those collections that like gets, you know, gets a little uppity about, about the movies they choose. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. I like hearing that from you. Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, okay. Well, you know, you're not because, uh, for a few years, although I don't think last year, uh, my wife did this. She, uh, you know, for Christmases, uh, Barnes Noble do their like winter, like big major discount, I guess around Black Friday for Criterion collections. And, and my wife would like dutifully, I guess, go to my shelf, which is impeccable. It's the only thing in my life that is arranged where you can actually find it. My clothes, anything else. Nightmare. God, God help you <laughs> if you're looking for one particular item. But these alphabetical order, the Criterions have their own spot on the shelf. Um, she would buy them. Like that's the only movies that she would buy for me, not just as a matter of taste, but because she knows like I can find those easily. And you know, because they're nice looking, mm-hmm. I don't just need a digital copy where some right. other things on Blu-ray, maybe I just want digital and I don't need this. Uh, you can be a damn skippy that when she's just picking out, she's, she usually is just picking out based on what I don't have and what the cover looks like. Yep. The princess bride was an absolute buy because <laughs> to what you're saying, she's like, not only have I seen this, I love this. Everything else, I don't know what the fuck this is. Right. <laughs> but I'm kidding him, The See? Princess Bride. <laughs> uh, now, what's going to pain you is she has not purchased me my own private Idaho. Because I went to my shelf, and I'm like, do I own that? Or no, I do not. Look, look, my own private Idaho uh, is not for everybody. It's one of my favorite movies ever made. But it's not one of those movies where I'm like, how could you not own that? How could you not love it? Maybe someday we'll do Gus Van Sant on this podcast. Uh, that'll be... That'll be an interesting month because there's, there's a lot going on. I just want to talk about his Psycho remake because I'm a great Again. defender of that. I'm one of the few. And yeah, well, I think I've, never I've done seen what, it, 15 so podcasts. That would be that would be We've interesting. Got to do Got to. <laughs> uh, I actually was looking at Douglas Sirk. That's one I'd like to do because uh, I was looking at All That uh, Heaven Allows. That's one of my favorite criterions. So anyway, what we're talking about, The Princess Bride. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's no. pretty good. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's all right. <laughs> look, okay, this one is going to be different from Stand by Me. I, I watched this as a kid. I think my stepmom was wondering. It may even be her favorite movie. I remember watching this on VHS on DVD. Uh, mm-hmm. If there was a laser disc, uh, she would have had it. But we didn't have laser disc players here in Kentucky. That didn't quite catch on. But we had them um, here, but I couldn't afford them. So <laughs> it's, it I kind of always wish I had. Those those didn't make a comeback, did they? Nope. For like cinephiles. Nope. Okay. Uh, this one's Laser always been my life. Be like the vinyl of. <laughs> I mean, they look cool, right? They're they huge. Yep. I, I would frame some. I've seen them at used bookstores, but the idea of getting up halfway through a movie and flipping the disc uh, right. doesn't seem appealing. Nope. It's hard for me to talk about the Princess Bride, like saying, "Oh, I've got a new take," because I've lived with it. Right. For as long as I remember watching movies, I've been watching The Princess Bride and I check in with it probably every few years because it it hits a certain sweet spot. And there's so many kind of like Spinal Tap. There's so many famous sequences and lines that you kind of want to revisit. And especially the first third of the film, uh, this this kind of series of mini adventures episodes or like video game challenges with (laughs) these fights and duels. Man, I could I could just watch that on its own before you even get to uh you know capturing the princess again to keep right. the video game parlance. Um, kind of like you though. Every time I watch it, I'm like, is it really? <laughs> I've seen this thing a hundred fucking times. Is it really that good? Like, I don't know why I question it. Why do I question? Like, you know, like I, I could have been wrong the first ninety nine times, right? This is gonna be a time where I break the princess bride. <laughs> 
Uh, well, my complaint is Billy Crystal as ever, and that's going to carry over into another. Oh, Jesus, <laughs> unbelievable! <laughs> Look, I can't hold that against the Princess Bride because it is a cameo, but it's a very distracting, a, a super distracting cameo in a film where I think most of the comedic performances are like on point. Billy Crystal does kind of come in and like seems like he just does his own thing for a minute, I mean, and then we get his, back to he's doing a bit. I mean, for sure. Yeah. It, um, yeah. it's. It's interesting. I almost didn't rewatch this for the podcast because I was like, why should I? Like, I have it memorized. Like, what do I really? And then I was like, you know, but then I was like, you know, it sounds really good watching The Princess Bride right now. Like, that sounds awesome because it's just like so good and so wholesome and fun. And, you know, I talked about when we talked about Stand By Me, I mentioned like sometimes there are movies that are nostalgic, like you put them on and you instantly feel like that kid again. And this is that. But it's also just a really, really well-made movie. Like, it's just fantastic, and I think it's pretty much perfectly cast, although I was talking with Hiro on our interview, and, like, you know, you probably couldn't, if you did this now, you couldn't cast someone like Mandy Patinkin, because uh, then you got, like, some some white guy, you know, doing a doing a Spanish accent, and it would never go down. Mm. Like, you couldn't do that. Man. But he's, he's so, so good. good. He's it's perfect. iconic in this role. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the perfect, and that's the thing, that's, like, the perfect word to describe a lot of things in this movie, is iconic, I think. There are a lot of films post Princess Bride that are trying to recapture this feeling. And I don't think anybody really does it like even just f- the the framing device of having, you know, Peter Falk come in and telling this story to his grandson and having especially the beginning, having these interruptions like, oh, it's more kissing. And, you know, you have all this stuff and that stuff all really works to break up the beginning of the movie in a really interesting way. So you can have all these introductions of characters and then have a break and then have another introduction. So things don't really get messy and get blended together. It's like, well, it's all really well thought parts, out. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like it's just chapter skip to when it gets interesting again. Yep. Oh, There's where no, are the no which fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I have fond memories of like, uh, my granny, you know, that that's the way she told stories. Like, you know, trying to, put me to bed. You know, she would just, <laughs> if you, if you kind of wrote down what she was saying, there would be gaps in logic <laughs> and there would be these weird jumping ahead devices where you're like, wait a minute, where were we? And it's cause she's just like, it is just like a, you know, oral tradition where she's just passing something down that she heard. And it does have that sensibility. So, you know, the framing device is this old man reading from a book. Uh, you, you get the impression somewhat that maybe even he's sort of riffing a little bit. He's, oh, yeah. he's tailoring it to his grandson's interests, which is, yeah. is very cool. And if not handled well, it would be something that in the editing post-production side of this, you could see them saying, do we need this? Can we cut this out? Like if, Because if, it could go the other way. It could actually just get in the way of the pace of the rest of the film. If you're into the fairy tale, maybe you don't want the stupid kid interrupting or the old man interrupting. I never think that. I do think that about Billy Crystal. Shout out to expert Hiro. He'll love that. Um, I think actually it pains me to say this, but I agree with you about Billy Crystal now. When I was a kid, I was totally entertained by it because like you're, you know, it's like there's a lot of makeup and he's yelling and screaming and it's very, and it is distracting. But watching it now, like there are moments in that scene where I'm like, oh yeah, we can, we can move on. Like, we don't, can you just like give him the medicine and we can get with the rest of the story? Um, and I was also thinking like, this has got to be one of the best, um, performances by a professional wrestler turned actor in a film. I think Andre the Giant is great here and not just 
because he is this insanely large presence. Like, that's really all he has to be. But he's really funny and really charming. And his interactions with Inigo are great. Like, it just really works. Like, if you take out maybe The Rock in Pain and Gain, this is probably my favorite performance from, you know, a wrestling entertainer turned actor. Like, it really works. Yeah, I don't, I don't uh, know his his film career, and I'm not uh, was never really into wrestling. Um, so obviously, just as Andre the Giant, he is an icon in, in that field. But he really does become unlike someone like Dwayne Johnson, who has already had a longer uh, cinematic career and has had, I guess, more hits. Uh, in a way, he he does become the the Fesnick character that that sweetness uh, and that sort of naive, gentle giant nature. Uh, it's really hard to separate him from that. And I can't remember if it's in William Goldman's first book, if it's in Adventures of Screen Trade or the uh, second one, Which Lie Did I Tell, uh, Where Princess Bride Falls. Because um, I don't remember where Adventures in the Screen Trade ends when that was published initially. Uh, but apparently he was just, he to some degree was this guy. He was, he was genuinely that sweet and that caring and that warm of a guy. So... Knowing that and having read some of those behind the scenes stories, uh, you know, that you definitely, I think, can connect with the character even more. Um, and yeah. that's, it's, it's weird as a kid to know that the, uh, you know, the villains initially aren't even framed like, oh, there's a turn and they're actually like good at heart. <laughs> they're, they're already from the jump, even though they're, they're being chased, uh, by our hero. Uh, they're set up as like, no, they're pretty good. Like they're, they're doing they're this nice thing guys. and we do they're have to do a job. Yeah. Like that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've all worked for assholes. I mean, this is <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but this has got to be, you know, I was thinking about this particular question the other night. Cause there is a connection here. I swear to God, I was watching Beverly Hills cop the other night for the first time in like a decade. Um, and I've not like, seen that since I was a kid in, and I haven't seen it in years, but I was amazed at how many lines that I forgot were from that movie, right? That like would just like come up in conversation when you're quoting movies and talking and you're remembering jokes. And it's like this and Beverly Hills Cop, like maybe Ghostbusters. This has got to be like one of the most quotable movies ever made. Like you could pick, like I don't think, aside from your Billy Crystal hate, I don't think there's a weak scene in this movie. I think every scene is so packed with memorable lines, but not in a way where it's annoying. Like there's some scene, there's some movies where you're like, Okay, like Deadpool, right? Where it's like a thousand jokes a second and like 10 mm-hmm. of them land, uh, but you're still getting 10 jokes a second. So you think it's funny, but really it's not that funny. It's just like, it's the buckshot approach. Um, whereas this is like really well crafted. Of course, it helps who wrote the screenplay. I mean, <laughs> a great, great writer wrote the screenplay, but like every scene has these moments that you can easily kind of pull out of it. And just like this is Final Tap, that they work as bits, but they also work as this kind of actually pretty complex narrative that's going on in a movie like this. It's kind of amazing that a movie this complicated is popular with kids, but still holds for adults. Like I, I was expecting to watch it again and be like, Oh, well this, this is funny because I remember it, but like, no, like I firmly believe that I could have never watched this movie somehow and then come to it now. And I think it still works. The only, uh, Let's see. I, I can't remember. I'm pretty sure I just dated one girl. There were two that did not like the Princess Bride, and as Ooh. soon as that came up, did you dump her? Immediately? I knew. I was like, <laughs> nah, well, in my head, yes. I'm like, okay, how long? 
How long do I have to wait before this is not a Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm <laughs> Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where you know it's clear I'm dumping them because they don't like the Princess Bride? But that right. to me, like that's a dumpable offense. When people look, when people tell you who they are, believe them. And I did. I'm yes. like, okay, this is Thank a monster. Thank you, Maya I'm Angelou. With... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did not think that quote I'm pretty would sure come she up. was talking about the Princess Bride. Definitely. <laughs> You know, there there was clearly a uh, you know a chill that came over me when I heard yeah. those words, and I'm like, all right, uh, I don't know if I was close to a holiday or if I was trying to be like, okay, I have to wait through the holidays, but I can't be with this person anymore. So yeah, I would. I mean, it's stylistic enough to where I guess I I could understand someone's argument that it's like these type of movies are just not for me. Mm. Like, and just in the first ten minutes, they're like, this is not my bag. But if you're willing to go along with the premise of it, I can't imagine there's anything in the execution that someone would dislike this movie. I, yeah, I don't know, unless you you were a monster, a monster who was attracted to me. Yeah. And well, I, <laughs> that kind of makes sense, actually. <laughs> it makes my life difficult. <laughs> yes. No, I think one of the things that came up when talking to Hiro is like, I have a very short list of movies. There's probably like five or six movies that like, if you don't enjoy this movie, I don't trust you. And The Princess Bride is definitely on that list. Like, I don't. I honestly, pretty much every movie I love, I could be like, oh, but I get it if you don't. Like, I could understand where it would go sideways for you. But this is like, this is the perfect crowd pleaser. And I think this is, in a lot of ways, indicative of Reiner's work. Like, he does make these kind of, like, for everybody movies for most of his career. But I think this may be the most of that kind of movie. Like, it is one of those that just, like, it pulls on your heartstrings, but, like, just enough. It's not in a way that it's, like designed to be a tearjerker um, and it's got the fantasy element and it's fun and it's funny and it's quotable. Like, it's just like, it's a perfect, it's a perfect movie for all audiences and not in a way where it's like, it's just for kids. Sometimes people say all audiences and that means G rated and not enjoyable for older audiences. But I just think this works on kind of every level. I'm glad you approve of my marriage uh, because my wife, you know, bought me this. I mean, I already did, but pass. now, I mean, she's perfect. Yeah. I mean, this is <laughs> my own private Idaho. Her not buying them. I, I believe the cover is that. That's it's got two beautiful men, right? Yep. Keanu and uh, Phoenix. Keanu and River Phoenix um, on a on like a on a motorcycle. Like it's it's a good look, but but you know what? Not in her wheelhouse. Based on her Christmas gifts, mm. I've noticed she likes the ones that are. Uh, uh, more stylized, either mm. drawn or more like old-fashioned poster looking. Uh, so, you know, just a picture of pretty men. I mean, she's married to me, so that's not going to do it. For yeah, maybe she's not into it. Yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, none of them have facial hair. They're just, they're too pretty. Like, I get it. It's, it's a lot to take Dude, in. this is, uh, I'm just going to, I mean, we were recording this. I know you try to keep it uh, timeless, but, you know, we're, <laughs> I don't know how long this will go on. We're recording this in the midst of a global <laughs> pandemic. Yes. And I'm just going to keep growing the beard out because I'm like, (laughs) look, you know, my hair is going to get shaggy. It's going to look really bad because it's definitely thin in certain spots. So it's just going to I'm going to look like Jack Nicholson, The Shining, just patchy. Uh, (laughs) So I'm going to have the beard to try to try to balance it out. Uh, Both one thing my wife did say, and she likes me with facial hair because she likes me to cover up my face as much as possible (laughs) is uh, she's like, you know, that's not good for germs. (laughs) Oh, no. So uh, I'm just going to die with a beard and my <laughs> copy of Princess Bride. <laughs> I think I think one of the last things I wanted to bring up is one of the things I really love about this is that the villains in this piece are not these unstoppable forces. 
they're they're weak men with a lot of power, right? So that's one of the I love the ending where you think there's going to be this like sword fight between Wesley and Humperdinck, and then he just like he he's a coward, and I love that aspect of this movie, and it kind of it does feel you know current to the situation we're in in the United States that our leaders are pretty weak and pretty cowardly. Um, so that stuff really works for me. And I, of course, love seeing Christopher Guest, you know, make another appearance in a Rob Reiner movie. Although he is one of those actors that if you don't, if you didn't look at the cast list, you might not recognize him because he's kind of a chameleon and looks different in mm -hmm. pretty much sure. everything. Um, but Chris Sarandon here is really good. Like, and it, it, his career has been interesting to me to like go back and watch other of his movies because for decades, this is the only thing I had seen him in. Like I had never seen Fright Night until like maybe four Fright or five, Night? like four oh, or wow. five years really? ago was the first time I saw Fright Night. Um, and it was very uncomfortable because all of a sudden Chris Sarandon is really hot in Fright Night. And I was like, I don't know how I feel and about he's this. And he's staring at you. Yeah. I was like, the window. I don't know about hot <laughs> Prince Humperdinck. I don't know how to process this. And this, like, this ties into the fact that this is one of those movies that just gets etched into your memory, especially if you watch it when you're young. So everyone in this movie. Like, every major actor, every time I see them in something else, this is the first thing I think of. You know, Carrie Elwes, when I see him in something, I'm like, oh, that's that's the farm boy. Maybe not Robin Wright, because she's had, like, a much more lengthy career, and, you know, like, she's done a lot more things. And Mandy Patinkin is Inigo Montoya, you know? Um, and, you know, Wallace Shawn, who a lot of people might not know, but he's in a really, another uh, Criterion movie, uh, My Dinner with Andre, which is incredible. Um, but I see him. I was, I was hoping you were going to tell me that uh, Clueless had a Criterion collection because oh, no. it deserves it. It's true, deserves um, it. But I see him, and I think of Vicini. Like that's the only thing I can think of. So this is just one of those movies that just like gets in your DNA. It's just like it's there forever. Like no matter how many times you watch it, I think it really does like have that hold, which very few movies do. Yeah, I guess that was the difference between my mom and my stepmom. I, I the you know the best uh divorce uh setting i guess as a kid because <clears throat> i love both my my sets of parents and they were they were they were great to me but yeah my stepmom definitely her sensibilities more nice and fairy tale <laughs> and my mom introduced me at a very early age to fright night and i remember the vhs copy of it she rules her man. favorite horror movie good it was my yeah and so i, I had both worlds of uh chris sarandon so uh i guess my exposure at an early age to jerry <laughs> the vampire neighbor uh that that supersedes anything he did in uh in the princess bride but it, it's fine um uh, it's fine dave it's fine for you to be scared of sexy yeah <laughs> sexy i mean surrounded. it worked for me don't get me wrong i'm very into it but it was it was it was definitely like an adjustment as i'm watching fright night because this is the only thing i've seen in it. all right um so that is it for this episode um and in our next episode we have we have a very strange combination of uh, we're going to watch When Harry Met Sally and Misery. So there's... <laughs> it's love not... stories. <laughs> yes. I mean, sure. Yeah, I like it. They're both love stories. This is, again, going back to your, you know, I don't, is that still around? War Machine versus Warhorse? Are those things still still coming out? I was thinking about doing an episode uh, tomorrow, but then you contact me and I'm like, oh, fuck. How many of these we got to record? Maybe I won't. That's <laughs> When people yes. ask me, why is that podcast not around? It usually comes down to one day, one evening when I'm inspired. And the roadblock is Dave, usually, yes. where I'm like, eh, that's I win again. That. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so until next time, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, 
Our at is directed by pod. And if you would like to hear the entirety of that interview with Hiro about Rob Reiner's movies and all of the interviews that we have done, including a special guest appearance by Mike, uh, when we, uh, when we talked about his favorite, uh, his favorite, uh, film that was directed by an actor, Keeping the Faith. You can donate to our Patreon any amount per month, as little as $1 a month, and you get access to all that stuff. And there's lots of other rewards on there, too. Just go to patreon.com slash a podcast directed by.